Welcome to Crown and Crozier. I'm your host, Patrick Brown. We're excited to welcome you back to this, our second season of our podcast on church, state, and faithful citizenship. We've got some great guests lined up over the next few episodes. We're excited for what's in store, and we're so grateful to have you back. Virtue. It goes by many descriptions. The Catechism of the Catholic Church characterizes it as an habitual and firm disposition to do the good. According to Aristotle, it's the middle ground between the extremes of deficiency and excess. For others, they say virtue is its own reward. In this episode of Crown and Crozier, we're focusing our sights on two essential virtues, justice and religion. Justice, of course, is the virtue of giving to others what is due to them. And while we may not always understand it this way, our guest for this conversation makes an elegant and compelling case for how religion is the highest form of justice, insofar as it involves rendering to God that which is due to him, placing our obligations to him above all our other duties, and thus ensuring the integrity of our social and political life in common. For this dialogue, we have the special pleasure of welcoming Dr. Scott Hahn, President of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and Father Michael Scanlon, Chair of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization at the Franciscan University of Steubenville. Dr. Hahn is one of the leading Catholic scholars and thinkers in the United States and is the author of 60 books, including one of his more recent publications, which we explore in depth in this episode. It is right and just why the future of civilization depends on true religion. Thanks again for joining us for the second season and enjoy the show. There are two swords. And the question is, which sword is superior, the spiritual sword or the temporal sword? And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. I die His Majesty's good servant at God's first. To say that we are over the moon with the honor of talking with today's guest would be an understatement. We have the great fortune of being joined by the one and only Scott Hahn. Dr. Hahn, thank you so much for joining Crown and Crozier. It's great to be with you, Patrick. Thanks for the invitation. Today, we're going to sink our teeth into one of your more recent publications, co-authored with Brandon McGinley. It is right and just why the future of civilization depends on true religion. You argue in the book that religion is the fundamental glue that binds together civilization. So any project, any consideration around strengthening and in our modern times, re restoring civilization has to have its, as its beginning and end, the strengthening and the restoration and reclaiming of the role, the central role of religion. So to kick off our discussion, you talk about religion in a very specific way in this book. Often when we hear the word, we think of a practice, a set of rituals, a set of actions, but you and your co-author describe religion as a virtue. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So to take a step back to contextualize, religion is a much debated term with more than a dozen competing definitions, perhaps the most famous one of which is Karl Marx's cynical quip that religion is the opium of the masses. And we begin with that because that might be the best, the best known uh, approach to religion or the one that is most widely held in secularized society. And what I propose to do, what Brandon and I do, is to rediscover and lay claim to 
the classical notion of religion from antiquity, not just from our own Judeo-Christian heritage, but also from the Greco-Roman culture. And so in a very deliberate and strategic way, we go back to the notion of justitia, justice, as you find it treated in Aristotle, but also especially in Cicero and somewhat in Seneca. And what is justice? Well, we know what it is. It's giving to others what is their due. But there are different levels of justice. We're most familiar with the lowest level, which is transactional justice, or what we would call distributive justice. And then there's also commutative justice, where we speak of the common good, and then how we take care of the society, paying taxes and that sort of thing. But there's a third level, which is the highest and the most forgotten level, and that is the transcendent order of justice, where we can't strictly repay others what we owe them because they've given us too much, starting, of course, with our parents. And so in antiquity, there was a recognition that you can't strictly repay the debt of justice you owe your parents. And so pietas, piety, is what you show them. You honor your father and your mother. And by extension, you do that also with the civil authorities because they're father figures, as it were. And so you show patria to the fatherland. Patriotism is how we usually understand that. And public service might be even military service where you're willing to lay down your life. But the highest form is the single most forgotten form, but not to Cicero, not to Seneca, and certainly not to Augustine and Aquinas. And that is religio, religion, because we owe more to God than everyone else. We owe to God our parents and our polis, our city-state and whatnot. And so what is it we do to express this virtue of justice, the highest form of justice, which is religio, we perform sacrifice. We offer sacrifice to the supreme deity and to no one else. To offer latria or sacrifice to a creature is the essence of idolatry. And so we offer sacrifice to God, beginning from the interior part of the soul, the heart, through love. In the natural moral law, we would see what we discover in the Torah, namely that the love, the Lord your God, with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, this is not supernatural revelation. This is the natural moral law written upon our hearts, which concupiscence has blurred, but we need to rediscover. And once we do, we see, okay, justice, what's the highest form? Religion. And what's the preeminent expression? Sacrifice. And what form does that take? Well, it's not only interior, but exterior. It's not only private, but public. It's not only personal, but since human nature is also a social political animal, then sacrifices are to be offered publicly and socially. And this is why even Aristotle, in the fragments that we have of his commentary on the Athenian constitution, defends the use of public altars as well as sacrifices over unblemished animals to basically sanction the oaths of office that you take. And this is universal. Even if people don't know why you swear oaths or call upon the name of God or pledge to offer yourself in public service to others, you know, sacrifice and sacramentum, that is, oath swearing. These are things that, well, it reminds me of what Chesterton said, that we don't know what we're doing precisely because we don't know what we're undoing. We're undoing over 2,000 years of this common tradition of natural moral law, which is not just about do's and don'ts. It's about virtue, but the highest virtue is justice. The highest expression of that is religion, 
And so this is why from Augustine, Aquinas gets this idea that religion is what he calls the virtus virtutum, the virtue of virtues, which doesn't mean it's simply the highest. It also bespeaks the unique capacity of religion to unite and to coordinate all of the other virtues. You think of a, a virtuoso musician, but uh, you know, in, in a certain sense, we, we need more than a room full of virtuosos. We need a conductor who understands all of the other musicians, all of the other instruments and the parts they play. And so in a sense, the Lord God, through the virtue of religion, has this capacity to unite not only the interior and exterior actions of my soul and my body, but also individuals in families and neighborhoods and societies. And so what I want to do is to blow off the dust from this rock and see, whoa, what is that rock? Well, I think it's something like the Hope Diamond or the Pearl of Great Price, because to rediscover religion is to debunk, I think, the most common myth of people who say, I'm spiritual, but not religious, which is really just saying, you know, I'm self-centered and commercial. You know, I, I, I basically approach matters of spirituality in a consumerist mentality. But if we recognize that God is the source of all being, and the standard by which we formulate judgments, then, you know, even if it takes a, a fair number of um, premises, the syllogism is complete, I think, when you reach this practically self-evident conclusion as to the unique importance of religion for persons and for society. And just finally, I'll stop here, but I'll say this, that one curious distinctive of the catechism of the Catholic Church that came out in the early 90s is precisely this explicit and repetitive uh, retrieval of the virtue of religion as a matter of justice, the highest form of justice. And in particular, I'm thinking of paragraphs 2104 and 2105. I'll just read briefly excerpts from those. But in 2104, we read about the social duty of religion as well as the right to religious freedom. We read, all men are bound to seek the truth, especially in what concerns God and his church, and to embrace it and to hold onto it as they come to know it. This duty derives from the very dignity of the human person. But then you take it up a notch in 2105, where we read, the duty of offering God genuine worship concerns man both individually and socially. This is the traditional Catholic teaching on the moral duty of individuals and societies toward the true religion and the one church of Christ. By constantly evangelizing men, the church works toward enabling them to infuse the Christian spirit into the mentality and mores, the laws and structures of the communities in which they live. The social duty of Christians is to respect and awaken in each person the love of the true and the good. It requires them to make known the worship of the one true religion which subsists in the Catholic and Apostolic Church. And, you know, you can see in the footnote all of the usual suspects are being cited. That is Leo Thirteenth, Pius XI, as well as Pius Twelfth, and Quas Primus, which is one of my all-time favorite encyclicals on the social kingship of Christ by Pope Pius XI that established the Feast of Christ the King. So I'll stop now, but you know, I by now you can tell that I, Brandon and I have been working on this book for years, but I have been working on this thesis now for decades. It goes back 
to A Father Who Keeps His Promises, my first solo book in the late 90s, as well as The Lamb's Supper, The Mass is Heaven on Earth, where I discovered that the holy sacrifice of the Mass is not only the supreme form of sacrifice, but it has this unique capacity to form civilizations. But even more than forming civilizations, what the what the sacrifice of the Mass forms above all is saints out of sinners. And so you know, this has been a project that has been more than 20 years in the making, but only in the last two or three years are the social implications being made more explicit because I think the need is so much greater. And so the tone is bordering on the emphatic. One point of emphasis in your book is that religion as a virtue is inherently, invariably, inescapably public. There's no such thing as private religion or Catholics ought not to believe that there is. And there is certainly so much pressure and movement these days around the privatization of religion. Okay, you over there, you believe in your superstitious God, that's fine. Go do it in the private confines and corner of your home, but but don't bother the rest of us. Why is the inherent public nature of religion so important to this thesis of yours? Well, uniting the visible and the invisible realms, you know, in terms of the two swords has been always a challenge for Christendom going back 2000 years, but it was a challenge before Christendom in ancient Israel. And so the temptation is always to take the physical force of the sword wielded by the temporal authority, which we identify as power, potestas. Whereas I think there's a higher form, auctoritas, authority, that is united to the spiritual sword wielded by the high priest. And so Christ himself is both the king of kings and a royal high priest of heaven and earth. And so what had been safely divided in ancient Israel for the common good of the 12 tribes was on the one hand kingship, which was you know, consigned to Judah and priesthood, which was consigned to the tribe of Levi. And so not until the God man comes can we safely reunite these two? And when you look at the pre-Mosaic form of religion, as St. Thomas Aquinas is wont to do, and Augustine and all of the fathers, you see in Genesis a form of religion that is identical with the patriarchal family, the extended family. So each and every patriarch from Noah through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is by virtue of his fatherhood, priest, prophet, and king. And not in some interior private sense, but in fact, Abraham is building altars and offering sacrifice and blessings. He's also delivering the oracle of the word of God as a prophet. He's also ruling and governing the people of God who are under his authority. And so this continues on until you get to Exodus. And after the sin of the golden calf, the Levites alone avenge God's honor after the desecrating sacrilege. And so in Exodus 32, Moses tells the Levites after slaughtering 3,000 worshipers with their sword, you've ordained yourselves to be the priests. And from that point on, but only from that point on, are the Levites entrusted with the spiritual sword of priestly authority. And then eventually you have the temporal sword of kingly authority entrusted to the tribe of Judah and especially to David, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, most people don't really care about this. Most people don't know Scripture well enough that even if they did care, it would make any difference. But again, 
the early church fathers, but above all, the medievals who had the responsibility to express physically, externally, socially, and politically. What are the implications of our receiving the sacraments? If we want to celebrate and receive the seven sacraments in a way that is, well, we could say eschatologically safe for our souls and our loved ones, then we ought to we ought to build a society based upon the power of the sacraments. And so what you have, as you know, in terms of the crozier and the crown, you have the two swords, you have the extension of the unity of the human and the divine in Christ through the Holy Spirit, exercised by Christ in heaven, our royal high priest, you have this unity restored at least ideally, but also concretely by the time you get to the 13th century, the high Middle Ages, and especially in the 12th and 13th centuries when you have King Louis IX, St. Louis as we know him. St. Louis is, uh, he's not the representative of the state as distinct from the bishop who represents the church. King Louis wouldn't even understand that kind of secularized terminology. He's baptized, he's confirmed, he's married in the church, he is laity. He's the head of the laity, but laity doesn't constitute the state as opposed to the church. No, clergy and laity, you clergy and laity alike unite to form the body of Christ. And so the head of the clergy is the Pope who has the spiritual sword. The head of the laity is obviously the king there who has the temporal sword. And the physical is subordinated to the spiritual, the natural order to the supernatural order. But what Christ effects is a kind of nuptial bond that brings about the unity of the spiritual and the physical, the unity of the, the clergy and the laity. It's not church and state with a confessional state. It's a faithful clergy united to a faithful laity. And the laity, of course, are subordinated to the clergy, but that's because earth is subordinated to heaven and the human to the divine. And so if we are going to live out the sacraments, if the clergy are going to live out holy orders in a faithful and eschatologically safe way to pass the test on Judgment Day, and if we as lay people who are called, even in Vatican II, to sanctify the temporal order, not to sanitize it, not simply to naturalize it, but to supernaturalize it, as it were, to live out the grace of the sacraments of baptism, confirmation, matrimony, but also our confessions and our holy communions at Mass. You know, this is what I think we have completely lost. And so we've become complicit and not merely complacent in allowing ourselves to become secondary characters in this progressive narrative of secularization, whereby we practically define progress with the privatizing of religion and the, the relativizing of any truth claims, be they theological or moral, if in fact they are dependent upon religion or divine revelation. And to me, you know, the, the prophets of ancient Israel had a word for this when Ahaz and Isaiah's day or others in, you know, ancient Israelite history. The word is idolatry. That when you forcibly subordinate the spiritual to the physical, the priestly to the temple, cuius regio eius religio is the stock formula that you find in the 17th century. Whoever is your regent, he defines your religion. Well, I mean, as my mom would say, that's bass backwards. You know, the, the, the political tail is wagging 
the sacramental dog. And uh, we use certain stories in the book to illustrate how many faithful Catholics are unknowingly complicit. You know, one of my favorite stories in the book concerns uh, the Vikings defensive and Jim Marshall, who back in 64 made NFL history by scooping up one of his fumbles. I mean, he had more recovered fumbles than any other defensive end. And yet he didn't make it into the Hall of Fame, at least not yet, precisely because of this famous wrong way run where he scoops up Kilmer's fumble and runs it into the wrong end zone. And he throws the ball to celebrate, but his teammates gather around him not to celebrate, but to berate him because he scored a safety inadvertently. So he became known as wrong way Jim, and it was the wrong way run. And he would have passed a polygraph. He was sincerely scoring for his team, but we can be totally sincere and still be sincerely wrong. You know, and so on the football field, you know, error has no rights. But on the football field of life, I think we also have to recognize the fact that if we do things sincerely but erroneously, we're going to basically spread toxins into our own soul, our family, as well as our society and church. And so it really is a wake-up call as we see secularization going into you know, overdrive. We've got to recognize the fact that what we owe to our kids, and now I've got 21 grandkids, what I owe to them is you know, running the risk of persecution in order to pass the final exam on Judgment Day safely. And I, and I think once you recognize all of these things, you might have to line up a lot of ducks in a row. But once you line them all up, it's like the conclusion is just a matter of sanctified common sense. One of the insights that really struck home for me from the book was how you and your co-author signal a warning in relation to the American project. You look at some of the liberal values and principles underpinning the U.S. Constitution, and then you draw a bit of a dotted line between those principles and the radically secular environment in which we find ourselves today. It seems that the message for Catholics, uh, taking our faith seriously, means we have to have a measure of skepticism or ambivalence when it comes to our patria, our native land. That is, we have to guard against too much of an attachment to our political system and recognize that there's something higher at play and that we got to get our ducks in a row in a way that answers the demands of justice to God. I'm just wondering if you can speak a little bit more to that. You've made a series of great points that I'd like to build upon, Patrick. I mean, first and foremost, you start off by recognizing secularity is not something bad, right? Secularism is taking something good, the secular order, which is temporal and natural and human and basically physical, visible, social and political. And it's a reductionistic move then to make what you see, not just what you get, but all you get. And, and so what we recognize is that there is a holy secularity. And this is what the sacraments are for, to enable us who are lay people to go out into the temporal order, into secular society, and to bring the, to sanctify it, as it were, but not to de-secularize it. It's still going to be natural, temporal. It's still going to be political. You know, and so just as Christ doesn't swallow up our human nature, but unites it to his divinity in his own person as the second person, the son. So there's a sense in which we share his sonship. And so we share that calling to unite the finite and the created to the infinite and the uncreated. Since we've been made partakers of the divine nature, as we read in Second Peter 1 verse 4. But, but secondly, I, I, I think you also are pointing out something important with regard to 
America or practically any other country yeah, where Catholic Canada for that born. matter too. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that, but I wanted you to say it. Um, I'm reminded of what Paul reminds the Philippians in chapter three, verse 20. He says, our commonwealth or our citizenship literally is in heaven. And the Greek term that he uses, polytuma, is the technical legal term for Roman citizenship or for them, Philippian citizenship for that, for that polis, for that uh, city-state. And, and what he's saying is not that you aren't Philippians, you aren't Roman citizens, you're not members of a secular society. No, we have dual citizenship. And so if our citizenship is in heaven, that doesn't negate our earthly citizenship. It just shows us that we live in a certain way in these two orders. And if the two orders are distinguished, that's fine. But as Catholics, we distinguish to unite. But in the, the, the Via Moderna, since the, the, the 1400s, Europe, you know, Western thinkers have tended to distinguish in order to separate. And then we separate in order to oppose. And then we generally oppose in order to elevate one and negate the other. And so in the process, I would say that we've got a tall order and we face the prospect of persecution. But that's nothing new. And the answer is not simply to press the reset and go back to the pre-American forms of Catholic government, because church historians can show us beyond any doubt that the single worst enemies of the Catholic Church have been Catholic monarchs who expedited the process of secularization. And so in as much as I believe in the family model of covenant governance, then I would always be open to patriarchy and matriarchy, to kings and to queens, but only if we trace it back to Adam and Eve and see how our first father and mother sort of subverted the, the proper order. And so it, it isn't the case that it's just a, an instance of nostalgia. We've got to get back to the 16th century or to divine right monarchy. I would say, though, that what, I, what we speak about, what we say about America is not foregrounded, but background, because this is not primarily a political manifesto. If anything, it is right and just is a sacramental manifesto that plugs more into the Great Commission than it does into any one party's platform or into a kind of integralist monarchist approach to things. While we have deep, very, very deep sympathies with the integralists and we count them as real allies, I think what I would say is that we take our marching orders from the Lord of Lords, who is the King of Kings, regardless of who can, you know, the Canadian Prime Minister is or who occupies the White House. And what I want to emphasize is just simply the closing words of our Lord, his parting remarks to the disciples at the end of Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Press stop. Wait a minute. Don't you mean to say all authority in heaven and earth will be given to me at the end of time? No. His ascension into heaven is not just you know, getting him out of harm's way. It's putting him on the throne of the universe. So he really is the high priest of heaven and earth, but he's a royal high priest. And so we don't confer upon him authority, which God the Father has already entrusted to him. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So we're not imposing Christ's rule on anybody. The Father is doing that. He is offering us this saving reign of Christ the King, which is a rule of mercy, united to justice. But then Jesus goes on, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And again, you want to press pause and say, don't you mean to say, make disciples within all nations? No, 
the term mathetes for disciple comes from manthano, which is to study, to learn. But a disciple is a disciplined student. And so we are to make the nations, and the Greek term ethne, all nations. And, and nation is not a secular nation state in the 16th century sense of these nascent entities called, you know, Germany, France, and other things. No, nations are ethnic groups, communities, but they are to be discipled. They are to be converted. They are to be evangelized, not just person to person, but also parents and parents, you know, parents and grandparents. And so make disciples of all nations. And then Jesus adds baptizing them because the sacraments are the only means by which this heavenly life can come to earth. And so the life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit comes into the human family by means of the sacraments, which don't make it automatic or guaranteed that we're going to have sacred societies that are holy, or for that matter, saints. Apart from the sacraments, we can't become saints, but the sacraments make it easy. I mean, they make it possible, not easy. And then finally, teaching them to observe whatever I have commanded you. So we can't tell state authorities to look over the word of God and scripture and tradition and select the low-hanging fruit that you think you can implement. No, we have to tell them what Paul told Agrippa and Festus. Look, there's a last day. You'll be judged on the basis of what your master is going to see you did in subordination to him. And finally, the promise is, I am with you always to the close of the age. So this is what the new evangelization consists of. It isn't just, you know, telling people God loves you, you sinned, but Christ died. And so, you know, choose to make him your savior and Lord. Those are the ABCs. I mean, that's how you begin the grammar of Catholic evangelization. But evangelization is to form a civilization of love. And John Paul was quite explicit and emphatic about that. And, you know, if we think the chances are nil, well, go back 2,000 years. He's sending out 12 men, but they're not 12 senators, the best educated, the most popular. No, he's sending out fishermen and tax collectors. What are the chances of them converting the Roman Empire? Zilch. And yet, against all odds, by the power of the Spirit, it took centuries. It took a lot of the blood of the martyrs. But if God could do it back then, and he didn't do it perfectly, it's not utopia, you know, but at the same time, we have emerging Christendom from the pagan Roman Empire. Talk about a culture of death. And if God could do it before, he can do it again. And I think that is what he wants to do, perhaps much more than we want him to. We would probably prefer to kind of conduct, you know, some sort of experiment where we just have, you know, the low hanging fruit of Jesus teaching uh, legislated, but don't even push that so much, you know, and Later in the book, we describe what happened in the early 70s in Sweden when these bank robbers took four, host you know, four hostages for five days until the authorities finally stormed the vault and released the hostages. And yet the hostages in, the, in this episode stood up and spoke out in defense of these two robbers. And even in the trial, they helped raise money. And this is where Stockholm Syndrome entered our vocabulary. And yet there's a spiritual Stockholm syndrome, a kind of ecclesial form of that, where we internalize the values of our captors as a sort of coping mechanism, but we don't even bother telling ourselves what we've done or why or how pointless that sort of maneuver or tactic should be. And, and so a lot of people would pass polygraphs, but at the same time, once you stack this up, once you show them the Great Commission, 
once you show them a little bit of history, once you show them the catechism, you know, such as 2105, then you're basically going to say, look, do you want to be a saint? Yes. But it's just for yourself, right? Not for your spouse. Oh, it's for your spouse too. Oh, okay. But not for your kids. Oh, it's for them, but not the neighbors. Oh, it is for your neighborhood too, but not the town where you live. Oh, it's for the town, but not the state of Ohio. Oh, it's for the state of, but not the other 49. Oh, it's for all 50 states, but not Canada. Oh, it's for North America, but not the other continents. Until you've backed yourself into the plain and simple recognition that this is what Jesus means when he says, make disciples of all nations. He's not giving us actuarial tables and some statistical probability that it will work. We simply have our marching orders and ours is, you know, not to reason why ours is, but to do or die as Tennyson would say. All of this dovetails really elegantly with one of your earlier remarks around how the purpose of the book was not to serve as a political manifesto per se, more of a sacramental manifesto. On the flip side, by the same token, one of the themes, one of the ideas we love to explore uh, on this podcast is the notion that the best and the highest form of citizenship that we as Catholics can offer to our neighbors and to society is living out and practicing our faith to the fullest. I, I was hoping to explore some of the specific, I'll say proposals or some of the specific guidance or, or ideas that you and Brandon offer in terms of turning that into action. One of the ones I wanted to chat about you just covered in terms of not succumbing to Stockholm syndrome, that is recognizing uh, what habits of thought and action are, are genuinely Catholic or living those out in practice. Well, one of the other courses of action that you and your co-author spend a good chunk of time on is properly observing and consecrating the Sabbath and making the Lord's day holy and restful. And, and among the takeaways I gleaned from your book, uh, if, if nothing else, if we're confused or unsure about where to start in terms of restoring civilization, geez, if we just invested more time and energy or all our time and energy, energy improperly observing the Sabbath, what a transformative difference that would make. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, you know, because uh, again, just take a step back in order to, situ to situate this response of mine. So if we recognize that the founding of America, even more than Canada, was a sort of political experiment in a Protestant way of understanding the function of state authority, and so there's not going to be an established church, at least in the federal level. And, and there are all kinds of other issues that we allude to, but we don't really address directly. I think at the end of the day, you can see why Jeremiah gave the message that he gave. In fact, we're working together on a book, Brandon and I, that will be a sequel entitled, After This, Our Exile. Because what bothered Jeremiah as the Israelites were being dispersed into captivity as exiles was not so much that they were in exile, but after a short while, they, they didn't know they were in exile. They did what Jeremiah encouraged them to do. They planted gardens, they built houses, they prayed for the peace of the town to which the Lord their God had driven them. But then they got so comfortable, so cozy, that they just stopped longing for Jerusalem. They didn't want to rebuild the temple. They didn't want to restore this magnificent sacrificial liturgy that fulfills the virtue of justice in the highest expression of religion through sacrifice. They were just really content to remain in Babylon. And when the remnant came back decades later, it was only a fraction of them that came back. And so what I think we need to do 
is not to set our hopes too high as though we're going to live to see the day when we have a Christian society or a Catholic social order, but just to kind of, I'm thinking of fanning the embers in the fireplace that, you know, it looks like it's out, but no, if we just fan the, the, the embers of desire and began longing for it, praying for it in a realistic and honest way, then our kids would get it. Uh, grandkids might take it. And, you know, we're not going to be planting this fall's crop that we're going to live to enjoy over the winter. No, we'll be planning forests that we might not be, live long enough to see. But, you know, in a hundred years, that, that forest that we plant will provide the wood for the furniture and the houses, as well as for the, the fireplace to, to cook dinner for our, our grandkids and our great-grandkids. And so, as Catholics living in America, the greatest thing we can do as our patriotic duty is to live out our Catholic faith as fully as possible, to share it as freely as we can, to do it with that effervescent joy that comes from knowing that we're only exiles in this world, no matter, no matter where we live, no matter what our society looks like. Even if we were alive in 13th century France and took classes from Bonaventure and Aquinas at the University of Paris, we were still, we'd still be exiles. And so we have to rekindle that longing for heaven and that recognition of our heavenly citizenship. Having said that, I want to then emphasize what you just asked, and that is the role of the Sabbath. Because in the Decalogue, the role of the Sabbath is really special. It's the hinge on which the Decalogue turns from the first table to the second table. And so the first three commandments, as you know, have no other gods before me. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And so the stipulation of the Sabbath in the Old Testament, which becomes the Lord's day in the New, just as circumcision becomes baptism or Passover becomes the Eucharist. So the, the stipulation is not just for individuals. It's also for families. In fact, it's primarily addressed in those terms. Six days, you shall labor, but it's second person plural. Y'all shall labor. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God, and in it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, but even your manservant, your maidservant, your cattle, or the sojourner who is within your gates. And so obviously this is where I'm going to push the envelope because we would be content to just pluck the low-hanging fruit when it comes to observing the Sabbath you know, in the confines of our own homes, which is really where it needs to start and finish if, it, if, if we can't take it beyond there. But, you know, going back 42 years when Kimberly and I got, first got married, we were far from Catholics. I was still a vehement anti-Catholic. But coming from the Reformed background and recognizing my own Reformed Calvinist heritage, I, I, I was not puritanical about the Sabbath, but my friends in seminary would call us Sabbatarians. And why? <laughs> because... I asked Kimberly not to cook, and she said, oh, you need a day off. And we would also invite my classmates over, especially the single ones, who would just simply go out to restaurants and employ people. We never gave them our ulterior motives to help them avoid employing people, the sojourners and those in the gates there. But we would basically have bread. We would lay out you know, cold meat, cheese, lettuce, tomatoes. And week after week, Sunday after Sunday, for weeks, for really for months and for like two years, some of the most unforgettable experiences of in-depth conversation that would go two or three or four hours about scripture, about the old or the new and this doctrine or that, you know, we just fanned the flames and, you know, created not an institution, but a habitus, you know, so that we look forward to it. Now, we have kids. And so 
and we have grandkids. And so Kimberly is just a kind of indomitable force of hospitality. So I can't convince her any longer. It's been many years and we've never been legalistic about it. At least our kids didn't think so. And our, our guests didn't either, but she now cooks a full meal and we gather around the table and we linger for two or three hours. We share a good thing. And over the years, we did our family rosary then and shared the good thing, not only from the last day, but also for the entire week or the last couple of weeks. And and, and we just kind of created a, a family custom that has now been transferred into well, our first three are married, and that's where we found the uh, the 21 grandkids. Uh, but Michael, who has seven, he's Dr. Han, the younger. He's a professor of scripture at Mount St. Mary's Seminary. Gabriel has nine. He was a focused missionary, but now he's the CFO of a, of a, of a corporation. And Hannah is expecting number five. Her husband is the dean of Christendom. We're really grateful and proud. Our fourth is not going to be having kids now that he's ordained Father Jeremiah. But I tell you, we always look forward to gathering as a family, like we did for Jeremiah's priestly ordination earlier this year in May. And we just hope to instill, you know, it's not like perfection. We're certainly not the holy family, but we all want to be holy and we want to do it together. And so to me, the Sabbath is precisely where it starts in rest with prayer and from the heart that offering of gratitude, that Eucharistia, that thank offering that is then culminating in the holy sacrifice of the mass. But then when we come back, we don't just simply, I mean, again, this is where uh, works of necessity, you know, come in and perhaps it's necessary to go out to a restaurant and our older kids are not as, you know, strict as we would be. And we're not strict in the sense of legalistic. But again, I try to avoid shopping on Sunday because you can't help but employ other people. And well, they're going to work anyway. Well, yeah. And you, I would have made darn sure that that's going to remain the case. But again, I don't want to accentuate the wrong syllable and make it about blue laws. But I want to help us to understand why there were blue laws and why we shouldn't just kind of thumb our noses at them. Uh, even if they were wrong, they were probably wrong for the right reasons. And so if we're ever to restore a Christian social order or Catholic societal values through the sacraments, we ought to plan to revisit those kinds of things because, you know, up in Ottawa, you know, when that part of Canada was arguably the most Catholic province in the world, you know, those kinds of customs, those kinds of habits were more than just laws. You, you mentioned that act of Thanksgiving being a fundamental component of observing the Sabbath. And of course, Thanksgiving in Greek being the origin of the, of the word Eucharist. And I want to make sure we, we give just enough time uh, to talk about one of the other proposals or points uh, that you and Brandon impart upon the reader in terms of uh, translating our faithful and full living out of our faith into good model citizenship. And on the Sabbath, we receive the Eucharist. But you and your co-author talk not just about, of course, the importance, the centrality of receiving the Eucharist, but receiving the Eucharist worthily. Uh, and there's an emphasis on that adverb. Among other things, in contemporary times, you know, there's a lot of discussion around this particular topic. The bishops in the United States are seized with it. They're putting out a teaching document in the next couple of months focused on Eucharistic coherence and lots of debate and lots of uh, concern around elected officials who profess to be Catholic, pursuing laws that are contrary to the, the dignity of life, and but still presenting themselves for communion. I want to go back to the source and summit of our Catholic life and, and ask for some of your thoughts on 
how that concept of receiving the Eucharist worthily fits into this larger work? Wow, great question. Again, <laughs> you're asking like the $64,000 questions with laser precision. Uh, yeah, the Eucharist as the source and summit, the holy sacrifice of the Mass. I'm reminded of what Paul enjoined the Corinthians uh, in two parts of 1 Corinthians. On the one hand, in 1 Corinthians 5, he's addressing this problem that he's stunned that they're even they're facing, and that is... Uh, They've got a, a member in the congregation who is having intimate relations with his stepmother. And he points out that even pagans know better than that. And so what does he require? He said, well, when you're assembled and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So what? So that your community may be purer than it was last Sunday? No. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, it's not just for the common good of the Corinthian congregation, not to have someone receiving Holy Communion who will desecrate it, but it's for his own soul's sake. It's for charity. It's for his salvation. And so he basically says, don't be so proud. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump and as you really are. For Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and the leaven of malice and evil. You know, Paul's argument takes this unexpected turn and you're like, Paul, with all due respect, what are you talking about? We we can't celebrate the new covenant Passover with leaven? Well, yeah, in the old covenant, and to this day, Orthodox Jews celebrate the Pascha by driving all the leaven out of their homes. They hide it, the kids find it, and then they make sure there is no leaven in their homes so they can celebrate the Passover. Well, that is allegorically pointing to, obviously, leaven of sin. And so cast out all of the mortal sins through confession, and only then is it safe. And the curious thing about this is that when you read 2 Corinthians in the opening chapter, you realize that reluctantly and belatedly, the Corinthians excommunicated this fellow for his own good. And then what is the aftermath? Well, he is sorrowful. He's repentant. And the Corinthians are asking Paul what to do. Paul's like, what was the point? Restoration. It wasn't simply eschatological annihilation of his body so that his soul might make it into heaven. No, welcome him back. That was the purpose of the punishment in the first place. And it's really an act of charity to exercise Eucharistic coherence by telling these politicians, look, we understand the media is going to hijack and turn you into pseudo-martyrs, but out of love for you and for your own soul's sake, do not receive. We will not give you Holy Communion, and not because we want to humiliate you or weaponize the Eucharist. No, precisely because we want to make it a safer path for you to travel so that you might repent like that man did in Corinth back then. The second passage that obviously pops into my mind is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven: Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Not guilty of profaning a sacred symbol of the body and blood, but the actual body and blood are profaned. And it's like, yikes, the stakes couldn't be any higher. So what difference does that make? Paul says in verse 28, let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, they eat and drink judgment upon themselves, which is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Paul, you don't mean to imply that people are sick and weak and died because they desecrated the Eucharist. Well, no, he's not implying it. He's stating it explicitly. And again, you can't perjure yourself and call that a sin. It's a crime in the secular order. Only this profanation is a kind of supernatural act of perjury. 
And so again, for our own sake, you know, ironically and tragically in the new lectionary, these verses are conveniently excised. And so the reminder is mostly entirely lost to our post-conciliar ears, but it's one of those things where it's there anyway. So we ought not to forget it. We probably ought to bring it to mind so that people recognize that this is more than just a neoconservative approach to Catholic politicians who are radically pro-choice, pro-abortion. This is just living out the Catholic faith and living out what we profess we believe in the creed. That's all beautifully said. It, it, it pains me to say it. I, I think we've reached the end of our time together today, uh, but I want to thank you for all of those insights, uh, particularly that last rousing call to Eucharistic coherence and, and love of neighbor. Again, for the benefit of our listeners, the book that we've been talking about is It is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion, authored by our guests, Scott Hahn and Brandon McGinley. Dr. Hahn, thank you again for being with us. We commend all of our listeners to your book. I just want to conclude with my favorite line from the book, civilization requires honoring God, cleaving to his church, and loving our neighbor as if grace really can elevate and perfect every bit of our soul. Beautiful words. It's been beautiful spending time with you. Thank you so much. Patrick, I want to say two things. First and foremost, you're welcome. What a joy. What an honor. What a privilege it's been to be with you. Second of all, thank you and your assistant, Michael Dopp, for what you're doing on your podcast, because what you're doing is urgent, but it it's also relatively scarce. Not many people are stepping out to do what you're doing and bearing witness to what the catechism calls the traditional teaching of the church. You know, when I quoted that paragraph, normally the catechism doesn't stop and say, this is the traditional teaching of the church, <laughs> unless people have forgotten the traditional teaching of the church. And on this matter, many people, and not just lay people, but clergy and even professors and so-called theologians. And so it's really been a uh, an exciting time to be with you and uh, with your associate. And so thanks. Keep up the great work and may the Lord bless you. Thank you so much. Uh, those are very encouraging words. We aspire to put the faith at the center of our lives. And we also take very seriously uh, the obligation to be good citizens. So thank you so much for those words. And thanks again for your time today. You're welcome. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. And help us to reach more listeners by leaving us a rating or referring us to a friend. If you'd like to partner with us in the delivery of this podcast, head on over to our website at crownandcrozier.com and click the heart button in the top right-hand corner to learn more about making a one-time or monthly donation. We're sincerely grateful for you listening in, and we look forward to providing you with future episodes on church, state, and faithful citizenship. Until then, God bless.